Let me pray, and we'll get into our study. Father, thanks again for your faithfulness, your kindness to us. It, it is um, it is a, an amazing thing to be on the receiving end of the all-powerful, magnificent, holy God's uh, grace and affection. And um, thank you, Lord. And give us wisdom, Father, as we um, open your scriptures and we want to hear from you today. And we need to hear from you. And so do that work of grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Seventy years ago, um, this uh, country was engaged in the biggest and bloodiest uh, battle of its history. Seventy years ago this weekend, 610,000 American troops uh, were taken off, uh, off guard by surprise by a major offensive of Hitler's war machine. It was called the Battle of the Bulge. You can look at a map, you'll see the bulge as the German forces had broken through the American line. It was a very, very critical time. It was started, started December 16th, and um, generals got together, uh, began to figure out their counter-offensive. They understood their mission from the generals to the common soldiers, and they accomplished that mission. The American 1st and 9th Army in the north, the Patton's 3rd Army to the south, they pushed forward, closed that bulge, and then began to push Hitler's army out. And within months, uh, the, the war was over. Europe found peace. Um, it would have been a totally different outcome if American generals and common soldiers had lost sight of the mission. But they didn't. Now, tomorrow night, the Oregon Ducks and the Ohio State Buckeyes are... Um, playing for the first ever uh, national championship of the playoff era. And right now, you can almost guess, coaches are making their strategies, their game plan. They understand their mission, and to the degree that every individual player, whatever team, understands their individual and team mission, their assignment, and accomplishes it tomorrow night, that team will probably come out the national champion. They understand their mission. They're going to work towards their mission. Now, whether it's a war strategy of a significant major world war battle or uh, a game plan of a national championship football game, whether it's a, a mission and a plan of a Fortune 500 company, of financial goals, or the teaching plan of a first-grade teacher, whether it's your plan or mission to lose 20 pounds in this new year or gain 20 new friends in the new year. You have to have a plan. You've you got to understand your mission and have a plan, and then you can't let anything deter you from accomplishing the mission. Now, as the church of Jesus Christ, we've been given a mission, a mission to accomplish. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world, and preach the gospel to all creation. Those are Jesus' words. That's a mission. The good news about Jesus, the gospel, go into the world and preach it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 8, we said, looked at it last week, said it this way, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ, the unfathomable riches. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you will proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And so as believers of Jesus Christ, our mission individually and corporately as a body of believers is to take the good news that has impacted our life, this good news about Jesus, his unfathomable riches, his unsearchable excellencies, and proclaim it. Now, if you think about it, there is no greater mission than doing that. There is no higher calling and no greater mission than we who have been touched by God's kindness and grace to be able to share that good news, that gospel, with somebody else. This wonderful good news message that God so loved us, the the great creator God who dwells in unapproachable life loves us. And he proved his love by sending his son who was God himself the second person of the Trinity, wrapped himself up in humanity and came to this earth for the express purpose of dying on a cross to satisfy the Father's righteous and holy demands put upon us because we're sinners. A payment needed to be made because we're sinners. Our sins needed to be paid for, and Jesus' blood paid for them. And the father was so pleased by that sacrificial work his son did, he raised him from the dead three days later. We've sung about it this morning. God loves this world. And the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus came and died and rose again. And there's nothing that will impact a life more. There's nothing more transformative than to know that we are loved by God and we can have an eternal relationship with him simply by faith in Christ alone alone. Now, that's the message of the gospel, the good news that impacts this world. And the church's mission is a focused mission. It's a a focused faith to proclaim the good news of Jesus to this world. Now, there was a church in the first century that uh, understood this. There was a church in the New Testament who who got it. And from the very first day that they heard this good news about Jesus, they were on fire. They couldn't help but be telling everybody about Jesus. They were such solid participants in the spreading of the good news, they became very endearing to the man who started that church, the Apostle Paul. It's the Philippian church. It was the very first church in Europe that the Apostle Paul had started on a second missionary journey. But they got it. And there was good reasons why they got it. We'll see that next week as we look at uh, the book of Acts and how that church got started. There was no more crazy grouping of people that came together to start a church than that church in Philippi. But they were touched by the grace of God, and it lit a fire under them of excitement because of what they had experienced by God's love and grace. But 
like anything oftentimes, circumstances of life, just daily pressures of life, just the stuff of life can be like a bucket on a, on a fire that's been glowing hot for Christ. And sometimes when that happens, we need someone to come and relight a fire underneath us. Well, the book of Philippians is written with that purpose in mind. The Apostle Paul wrote this while he was in prison. He was in prison because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though he's in chains because of his testimony for Jesus, he writes to the Philippian church one simple message. As he has gotten some word from some friends that had come from Philippi about the state of the affairs of the church, he writes one simple message. Don't give up. Don't lose sight of the mission. You started out so well. In fact, even now, you guys are you're doing well, but, but don't give up. Don't give up. Proclaim the gospel. Keep sharing the unfathomable riches of Christ. Don't lose sight of His excellencies and don't stop sharing it. Don't lose a focused faith. Now, this morning I want to give you a little background, an overview to this book of Philippians that we are going to study over the next few months. And, um, and then I also want to give you kind of an overview of the text, of the argument of the book itself. The, the, the city of Philippi has a very interesting history. Um, if you look at a map, it's, it's kind of up at the very top here of this map, uh, Philippi up there in Macedonia. Paul had come over from Troas, and that was his first stop in Europe. From Asia to Europe, city of Philippi, he started the church there. Well, it was named for Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon. Uh, very interesting character, obviously the father of Alexander the Great. In 168, however, that uh, uh, city of Philippi was acquired or taken over by uh, the Romans. Um, now, its most in, in important uh, history comes later. All the other stuff with Philip II is kind of boring, but in 42 BC, that's when everything really takes place. That's what defines the city of Philippi. Two years earlier, in 44 BC, um, Julius Caesar had been assassinated. And if you remember anything about Roman history or world history, there were two generals who uh, had accomplished this assassination attempt and planned it and were the key players, Brutus and Cassius. And after assassinating Julius Caesar, things did not go well for them. They ended up on the run. And Mark Antony, who was having a tryst with Cleopatra, who had been a mistress of Julius Caesar, you can imagine how all this uh, went down. Mark Antony and another guy by the name of Octavian chased Brutus and Cassius to outside this city in Macedonia called Philippi. And there a decisive battle was waged, fought, and won by Mark Antony and Octavian. Brutus and Cassius were defeated, and uh, Julius Caesar's assassination was avenged. Well, a few years later, this man, this general Octavian, rises to prominence as Caesar Augustus. 
the emperor of all of the empire of Rome. And he remembers the, the, with, with favor this, this city of Philippi where this decisive battle had been waged that pushed him into prominence, that really gave him the right to be a, a Caesar Augustus. And he remembered Philippi, and he blesses Philippi with this incredible honor. He designates this city of Philippi as a Roman colony. Very few could take that, um, um, that honor. And he changed the name to this. Colonia Julia Augusta Victrex Philippensium. Wow. Impressive. Where are you from, Winchester? <laughs> Where are you from? Colonia Julia Augusta Victrex Philippensium. Very impressive. Something to be proud of. Not every city could claim that privilege as a Roman colony. Here's what it did for the people of Philippi. You're born in Philippi. It is as if you were born in Rome, in Italy. Uh, you didn't have to pay Roman taxes. Uh, you could talk and walk and act like a Roman. Uh, Latin was your main language. Um, everything that a, a person and a citizen of Rome and Italy enjoyed a citizen in Philippi. They didn't have to worry about Roman scourgings or, or executions like crucifixions. They were citizens of Rome, just as if anyone in Rome was a citizen. So anyone growing up in Philippi had to be proud of the fact that they were Philippians. And certainly the believers in the church of Philippi must have been proud of the fact that they were Philippians that they had been born in this city of Philippi. They were Roman citizens. But the Apostle Paul, who'd come and started that church, didn't want these Philippian believers to forget that they were citizens somewhere else. Not only were they citizens of Rome, but far more importantly, they were citizens of heaven. And to lose sight of that important fact could easily cause a church to lose their focused faith. And so, from a Roman prison, Paul writes a letter to his dear friends, challenging them to refocus their faith, to stand firm, to strive together with one heart, with one mind, to reinvigorate the passion. Paul writes this letter as if he, he's blowing on them the, the dying embers, to reinflame, to reinvigorate their hot passion for Christ. I want to give you just a, a real general overview for the overview of the feel for this book. And like I said, next week we'll go to the book of Acts, and then in the consequent weeks we'll we'll get into the verse by verse exposition of it. You get a sense of the kind of relationship that Paul had with the Philippians in the opening verses. Turn with me to Philippians chapter one. Verse 3, in these opening verses, his prayer, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul said, man, you guys, you guys were nuts. I got there, you grasped this good news about Jesus, the gospel, 
and from the very first day, you didn't stop with it. You are on fire. And when I think of you and remember you, I do it with joy because of all that you've done. At the end of the epistle, you continue to see this this very endearing relationship. Chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. And indeed you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. And it's not that I speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now jump down to verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, verse 14, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, which was a, a town down the road a ways, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. These Philippian believers were engaged in the proclamation of the unfathomable riches of Christ. They were doing it themselves. They were collecting offerings and doing it and passing it along so Paul could continue to do it. In fact, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church, which is down in southern Greece. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he actually mentions the Philippian church as an example, as a model of how to do it. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we won't take the time to turn there, but he just says um, that the Macedonian church, that Philippian church, in, even in spite of their poverty, they gave of themselves and they gave materially for the advancement of the cause of Christ. And he mentions it here. He's kind of writing a thank you letter in one sense. He's telling them, thank you for, for your participation You've been with me. You've walked with me. Your participation in the proclamation of the greatness of Jesus, you're, you're second to none. You're second to none. He loves this church. But he doesn't want this church to have its fires for Christ go out. See, there are things that can jeopardize a focused faith. There are things that can, can jeopardize our mission. Paul is going to mention four of them in this epistle. I'll just briefly mention them here. Number one, what can jeopardize the focused faith? Well, persecution and suffering. Tough times, circumstances that are ugly, especially if they're becoming ugly because you're standing for Jesus. Persecution and suffering can throw water on the fires of passion for Christ. Second of all, disunity and a lack of love. In fact, um, within a church body, you start going through some rough times uh, in the world or financially or just the walls start coming in around you because of persecution, there can be tensions even within. Thirdly, joylessness, grumbling. See, the first two can lead to the third one. All of a sudden, you begin to look at the situations and circumstances of life, and the joy is gone. There's a fourth thing that can jeopardize a focused faith, and that is a lack of, of heavenly mindedness. Now, Paul's going to develop these in this short epistle. Um, I just want to summarize these things real quickly. So go to, with me to chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. 
the impact of, of suffering and persecution, jeopardizing a focused faith. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Now, verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake and experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. <laughs> okay. Did you catch that? We'll unpack that in, a, in a, another week or two. But Paul says, to you it has been granted. It's where we get the word grace. God has graced you to believe in him. Praise God, amen, hallelujah, that lights my fires. You know, that's exciting. I didn't deserve his grace. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited favor to me, to you, if you know Jesus. It has been granted you to believe in him. That's his gift of grace. But then he says not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Hey, give me the first one, but take away the second. But he said it's, it's, a, it's a gift of his grace to suffer for him a reorientation of one's thinking. This is what Paul is calling the Philippian church to consider. There's something else that can derail a focused faith. It can flow from being persecuted. It can flow from suffering. And that is that, that disunity, the grumbling, the complaining that takes place sometimes within a body of believers. Turmoil among fellow believers. And so Paul lovingly addresses this very lovingly in his epistle. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if, any, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. What is Paul doing? He's kind of giving them an attitude adjustment. <laughs> Make my joy complete by being one. The same heart, same mind, same passion. Come on, guys. Stand firm and strive together. Don't lose sight of the mission. And we lose sight of the mission when we start looking at one another. And all the problems and situations, and they said what and did what. And go over to chapter um, 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm. In the Lord, my beloved. And then verse 2. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. They've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel and help with, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, who, know what, who knows what was going on, but there's two gals whose names are, you know, blazing for all of history. And they're 
little problem within the Philippian church, Yodia and Syntyche. Whatever it was, there was disharmony. They had an argument with one another. And the, the mission was being jeopardized. You've participated with me in the gospel from the very first day. Um, there's problems though. Yodia, Syntyche, deal with it. Live in harmony. And Clement and my true companion and, and others, help them do it. Help them do it. There's a, a third thing that can derail a focused faith or cause us to get off track, can jeopardize the mission, and that is just, just, a, a, just a lack of joy. Another way of saying this is there's nothing like a joyful heart that can enhance accomplishing the mission of letting people know how excellent Jesus is. I mean, my word, how many people would want to find out how wonderful Jesus is if you've been, if you look like you've been baptized in lemon juice? <laughs> you want to tell your face, you know, you're happy and you know it? Well, tell your face. And over and over again in this epistle, Paul weaves that theme in of joy. Hey, persecution, suffering, circumstances of life, yeah, that can impact all of that. It can impact one's relationships within the body of believers. It can impact within the home. And it can impact your spirit. And this is one of the key themes. In fact, some people think it's, it's the key theme in this epistle, joy. I don't think it's the key theme. The key theme is this call to don't give up. You've participated in the gospel. Let's keep going. But he has to address the issue of joylessness. Over in chapter 2, verse 17, gives you a little bit of the picture of how he does this. Chapter 2, verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul is saying, look at me, I'm the example. Hey, I'm chained to a Roman guard. I'm in prison. Paul was facing the reality of, of his execution. And he said, I rejoice. I, I, I share my joy. Now, you do it too. He sets himself as an example of rejoicing. Or go over to chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. So guess what? He writes the same thing again. Chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, let me say it again. Rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit or your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Tell God what you need. Joy. Rejoice always. It's a key theme that runs throughout this epistle. There's a fourth thing that can help keep a focused faith growing strong. And that is this heavenly-minded perspective. A focused faith needs, needs something in the future that is real and true, that gets us beyond the daily pain of life to the reality that God has something better planned. 
Keep your eye on the prize. You know, when we lose sight of that, we lose heart and we can give up. Paul's concerned for the Philippian church. He doesn't want to give up. From the very first day, you've been running hard. Now keep your eye on the prize. See how he does it over in chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. One day, life on this earth is going to be done. One day, Christ is coming back. The day of Christ, he says, is going to take place. And I'm confident. I know he's, God's going to do this. He's going to keep working. You know, I know he is. Uh, now, keep being heavenly minded. Look at verse 10 or verse 9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So, verse 10, that you can approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Keep running the race. Don't give up. Don't stop. Fan the flames of passion for Jesus. Whatever you do, don't stop because the day of Christ is coming. Over in chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted Christ, Him, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. It's coming, Paul said. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't stop in your, your zeal and participation of the gospel, of the good news. There's a world out there that non, doesn't know the unfathomable riches of Christ. You've been running hot for Jesus. Now keep it up. Because one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess he's Lord. That day's coming. Or look over in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. (laughs) In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Folks, we're in big, serious trouble. If Paul was concerned about attaining to the resurrection of the dead, there's not a person in this room who shouldn't be concerned. What in the world was Paul saying? That I may attain to the resurrection of the dead? We'll get to that sometime in March. But look what he says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brother, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I'm pressing on toward the goal for the prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, that's what I'm doing. Yep, I'm chained in a Roman prison. But I'm running, and I'm forgetting what's behind, and I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. Come on, Philippians, let's do it. 
the upward call of Christ. It's coming. The day of Christ is coming. Don't lose the heavenly mindedness. And then he shocks them in chapter 3, verse 20, by saying, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And man, that would stop the Philippian believers reading this letter. Colonia, Julia, Augusta, Victrix, Philippensium. Oh, you're citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. And a, and a Savior's coming back and is going to transform your bodies. Now, keep running. Don't give up. Don't look back. Press on. Stand firm in the gospel. Strive together for the gospel. Have a focused faith. Don't lose sight of the mission. Fan the flames, the passion for Christ. We are called to a mission. Fellowship Bible Church. We're believers in Jesus Christ. We're called to a mission. We have been bought out of the slave market of sin. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. The King of Kings has called us into an eternal relationship with Himself to accomplish His eternal mission. We are called to declare His unfathomable richness and proclaim His excellencies. Is the fire burning in your heart and your soul hot for Jesus? You know, if we're going to de declare the unfathomable riches of Christ, if we are going to fulfill our mission of presenting the good news of the excellencies of Christ, we've we, we, we got to get maybe re-enamored with Christ. We've got to know Him. We've got to walk with Him. We have to experience in our own life experience His unfathomable riches. And smack dab in the middle of this epistle in chapter 3, you get that from the heart of Paul. Look at chapter 3. Paul said, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in this flesh, I far more. If anyone wanted to put confidence in me, Paul says, I could do it. I was, he says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Of the special, unique people of God, I was on the top rung of the ladder. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul said, you couldn't get better than me. You couldn't, you couldn't find a more stellar example. But verse 7 of chapter 3, whatever things were gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of 
knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And you know what he says? I count it all as rubbish that I may gain him. You talk about a fixated passion, a focused faith. Paul is saying, that's where it's at. And we'll never declare the unfathomable riches of Christ to this world if we don't experience it ourselves, if we're not reminded over and over again, this is my Jesus. This is who He is. The excellencies of Christ. I know Him. And I want to continue to know Him. Does a fire burn in your heart? Over these next weeks, as we study Philippians, that's our prayer. That's our prayer, that we will not lose sight, that we will not get off focus on our mission, that our hearts will be enlivened and, and reinvigorated with a passion for Jesus. Fritz Kreisler was a world-famous violinist in the 20th century. He earned a fortune in the concerts that he played and the compositions that he wrote, lectures that he gave traveled all over the world and performed. He was a very generous man, apparently, and he gave away most of the things he earned, his wealth. That didn't matter to him. He just was focused on playing the violin and letting the incredible melodies of that instrument bless audiences all over the world. One day on one of his concert tours, he ran across an exquisite violin that was for sale something that Fritz Chrysler needed to have, but he didn't have the money to pay for it. He'd given most of his money away. So it took some time for him to call people up and do a few more things and gather the funds, but by the time he had the funds to buy this violin, it had already been sold to a collector, and it was lost. He was able to track down this collector, pleaded with him, had the money, wanted to pay him well for the violin. And the guy said, no, he wanted to add this to his collection in his museum. It was not for sale. And Fritz Chrysler asked, made one final request. He said, would you at least let me, I, I would just, I want to play it one time before it is silenced forever. And the collector gave him that permission. He took this beautiful musical violin, put it up to his shoulder and ear, and began to play. And only as the Fritz Chrysler could do, the melodies and the sounds filled that room, and the collector listened, and his heart melted, and he knew what he had to do. Until Chrysler, stop. It is yours. It is yours. Take it to the world and let people hear it. Folks, that's our mission. The beautiful melodies of Jesus, his unfathomable riches, the excellencies of, of him. It's the melodies of Jesus that the world must hear. Don't stop, says Paul. Don't look back. Don't give up. Stand firm in the gospel. Strive together for the gospel. Don't lose sight of the mission.
Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? For, Lord God, we, we all know how easy it is to get caught up in, in doing life and the struggles and the challenges. And um, oh, we come to church and we'll do mark our time and give our tithes and offerings and we may even get involved with a, a Bobby Hudnall and in a fatherhood initiative in this community in, in prison or, or help fund a, a church plant in a Hispanic community here in town or, or just invite some neighbors over even and get to know them and begin maybe listening and sharing Jesus at some point. We can do things, but Father, the real question is what's, what's our heart like? And Father, I would ask that as we spend time here on a Sunday morning studying Philippians or a women's study on Galatians or a men's group or going to a men's conference of, of transformation or being involved in a community group or whatever it is, Father, um, that our goal and our passion will be to see you, to know you in the midst of all these activities. Um, light that fire anew, Father if it's been dying. Breathe upon us that fresh air to get those embers ignited. Help us not to stop. Help us not to lose focus. Help us to run the race. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.